It's good to be back, you all, and it seems like it's been longer than a month, but I guess that's all. Oh, yeah, so much happens. Hope you're all ready to get back into the Book of Romans, because we will be talking about a passage today, if you haven't already turned to chapter 13. I won't finish this passage or the passage that I sent an outline on, but it's... uh, passage that could have been written yesterday. In fact, every passage could be because of the uh, inspiration of Scripture. But this one especially, because of uh, what it contains, it seems like Paul could have written it just yesterday because it applies so closely to not only our situation, but the world situation today. Very similar to what I believe believers in the first century were facing Times of instability, times of oppression, I guess you could say. Not that we're experiencing much of that, but times where it was essential to stay in fellowship, to walk with the Lord, and you might even say a time of urgency. And I think every time period of the church age should be viewed as a time of urgency because of the concept that Paul alludes to in uh, chapter 13 in the 21st century. Before we get into the verse itself, Linda, why don't you open for us? Thank you, Lord, that Ray got back and that we can all be together and learn how to be in this, this crazy world. I know I am as crazy as the next person. I, I kind of want to fix it all. And... Uh, I know that's not the way because God is fixing it and uh, help us to kind of stay out of trying to fix it and at least help me and uh, that we could put on these these garments that uh, are of the light, garments and tools and things to keep us uh, in the light and not getting caught up in worldly matters. That's my prayer for the world today. Amen. Thank you, Linda. So if you haven't already turned to it, let me just read the first verse real quickly that gets us into the passage, then we'll introduce it and see how far we can get today. Even though there's only four verses left there, I don't expect to get through all of them because there's some interesting things that we need to discuss on the way. But verse 11 And this, this is New American Standard, this do, knowing the time, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. So Paul is writing to the church in Rome, recognizing that even at the time that Paul lived, there was creeping complacency. There was the tendency to kind of settle in to your Christian walk, probably neglecting a few things. 
not as fervent as probably when one first believed in Jesus Christ. So I think he's giving a little bit of an encouragement to think in terms of the urgency of not only the times, but living a life in light of those times and living a life of urgency. So knowing the time. So let's talk a little bit about knowing the time. And in in order to do that, we need to develop the context here. We're getting towards the end of the book here. We've looked at the main doctrinal sections of the book that deal with primarily chapters 1 through 8. God has provided his very own righteousness in terms of entering into a relationship with him and also in terms of walking with him in terms of righteousness. And then there was a special issue of the nation of Israel. There were lots of Jewish people in the first century, and many of them rejected their Messiah. So what do we do with them, and how do they fit into the plan of God? Did the church now replace them? And I think Paul is adamant in saying, no, there is not replacement theology. Now, we need to stress that today because a large portion of the church views the church as replacing the nation of Israel. But that is a false doctrine and goes totally contrary to chapters 9 through 11. So Paul is vindicating the righteousness of God in relationship to Israel. He is perfectly righteous to set them aside for a period of time only. And then eventually all of Israel shall be saved is what chapter 11 emphasizes. That's kind of the central verse in there. And we're kind of in between the time when they were set aside and they're still set aside in terms of God's dealings. But interestingly, they are on the scene in terms of a nation. They are a nation today, and I believe preparing for this time that Paul is talking about, knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. And perhaps God is setting the table to once again deal with the nation of Israel. So chapters 9 through 11 vindicate God's righteousness in relationship to Israel. And then he's concluding the book with applications. In other words, what does this righteousness look like in in everyday situations? And he starts off, obviously, with the most important area, the relationship that we have with God himself. And it's one of yielding to him like a living sacrifice and moment by moment walking with him, renewing our minds rejecting the world system. All of that is in verses 1 and 2. And if we have that relationship right, then that's the foundation to have a relationship with fellow believers in the body of Christ. So the church is the topic of chapter 12, verses 3 through 21, our relationship with the church, starting with spiritual gifts And that's the primary focus of what Christianity should look like, is we should all be ministering within our spiritual gifts in the situation the Lord creates for us to have relationships in the body of Christ. And then, last part of chapter 12 deals with loving members within the church. And then we extend that relationship to the world, or society, and that's chapter 13. 
And our primary responsibility there is to the governing authorities and government, the institution of government that God has established, Genesis 9, and still we are to be submissive to it. And then he has another section on love. We are to love, I believe, the citizens of society as well. So it's not necessarily a duplicate of chapter 12, but it is the same topic, but a different area of application. And when we get done with chapter 13, we'll look at Christian liberty. Two long chapters, but we won't take as long as we have with other passages. It'll take a while to introduce it, a couple of Sundays, but then I think we can get through the passage rather quickly. And then we're pretty much at the conclusion of the book. So this summer, hopefully we can wrap things up in the book of Romans. So that's where we're at. We're in chapter 13 on an outline, same chart, except in outline form. We have the application of the church to the church, 3 through 12, chapter 12, and application to society. We've looked at submission to authority, 1 through 7, summation of love, 8 through 10, and now we're looking at a stimulation or an encouragement for living in the light And living in the light is the attitude that we need, and it should be an attitude of urgency. That's verses 11 through 14. And we'll take a look at verse 11, the significance of the times. So let's develop the time frame in which we are living in. And in order to do that, let's familiarize ourselves with the time that Paul writes, and we can draw some very clear parallels with the significance of the time frame in which we are living in. Well, the significance of the time, uh, verse 13. But before we get into this short four-verse paragraph, let me uh, introduce it by explaining at least four images. And now they're not complicated or not difficult to envision, but these are four images that would have been very familiar in the first century. And they're also familiar in our culture as well. So this will help you to put the passage not only in the historical context, but help you to understand what Paul is trying to communicate by using four images. Now, we stress in our study, at least, the grammatical, historical, contextual approach. In other words, that's more commonly described as a literal approach to Scripture. And what we mean by literal, we mean that we take the passages as they are intended by the original author. And if he uses figures of speech, then we take them as such. And we avoid reading into any passages ideas that are not in the text or making literal statements into figurative statements or even abusive, abusing statements that are intended to be taken as images or metaphorical. So we let the author dictate and do everything that we can to let the text speak for itself. The uh, counter way of uh, approaching scripture that is actually innate within us and our tendency. So we have to guard because our tendency is to make the scripture say what we want it to say. 
And that's our tendency overall. Sometimes we want to hear from people what we want to hear, and we don't hear what they're actually saying. And this is this can happen in marriages as well. But this is a basic difficulty of communication, and certainly it spills over in our Bible study. So we want to constantly be aware, am I trying to make this passage say what I want it to say, to fit my theology, to fit my thinking, to fit my, my desires, my, my perspective. But the grammatical, historical, contextual approach encourages us to let the text speak for itself. So we do have imagery, uh, metaphorical language, you might say, another way of describing it. And there's at least four images in this passage that you need to be aware of in order to take them in the way that Paul intends them, in other, in other words, the way that he wants us to understand them. Some of these images re- relate to time itself as he starts off the verse. And this do, knowing the time, and then he says that it is already the hour. Now he's using hour in a broader sense than 60 minutes. He's not referring to it literally. He's referring to it in a broader sense. And we do this commonly ourselves. We use that word in the same way. And then later on, when we get to verse 12, the night is almost gone. Now he's not talking at uh, five o'clock in the morning just before the sun rises, but he's using the word night in a broader, more metaphorical sense to refer to not just one day or one night, but a broader concept. And we'll develop all of these as we get through the verses. And similarly, the counterpart to night is day. He's not talking about 24 hours here. And in general, when the word day is used, very often in scripture, it's used in that literal 24-hour sense. And sometimes the light portion of the day. But again, just like night is referring to kind of a period. He's going to use the word day in a similar way. We'll develop that when we get to verse 12. So that's the first image, is the image relating to these times that are referred to in verse 11, and even the idea of hour in verse 11. The second image that we have is awaken from sleep. And again, it's not that you're tucked in your bed under the sheets, He's using this idea of not only awakening, but the whole concept of sleep in a more non-literal metaphorical sense. And he's using it in a more spiritual sense that we'll talk some more of in a moment. And thirdly, relating to night and day, he uses light and darkness. And again, he's not talking about physical light and physical darkness But uh, just as he's using night and day in a metaphorical sense, he's going to use the concepts of light and darkness. So when you see in verse 12, the night is almost gone and the day is at hand. Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. So we have another image in verse 12. So lots of imagery. And there's even a fourth image that we have uh, in uh, verse 13. Let us behave properly as in the day. Now we hear there's the day again, not in uh, 
carousing, drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity, sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. And then verse 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. The imagery of putting something on, in fact, this is a very common imagery for the Christian walk. And actually all of these relate to the Christian walk, but particularly putting on something, which implies the taking off of something else. And those images of putting on and putting off are very common, particularly in Paul, but not just Paul. We'll see that when we get to verse 14 next week that it appears in other writings besides Paul as well. So we have four images one relating to time, one relating to sleeping or awakening from sleep, one relating to light and darkness, and another one relating to putting on something using the imagery of putting on clothes. Now, I think in the first century, you can put all of these together under another image that might be behind Paul's thinking here. Because of uh, another phrase that he uses there, in fact, you could even include this imagery in the end of verse 12, put on the armor of light. There's the putting on idea again, and the armor of light alludes to a first century context of a soldier on duty. And I think if we combine all of these, all of these images and think in terms of the experience of a first century soldier, which they were rather common in the culture. You saw them oftentimes. All of these images fit a soldier. And if you look at many other passages that refer to them, uh, you recognize, obviously, and from our culture, you recognize the duty of a soldier is to not only be alert and be ready, And uh, he obviously lives a life of urgency. Sometimes his life is at stake. He can lay down his life on any given day. So all of the imagery here, I think, can be tied to the overall imagery of a soldier on duty. And oftentimes in the first century, a soldier in the culture, the night before, before they go into battle on the next day or prepare for battle or whatever they have scheduled the next day. They might spend the night more relaxing and it was not uncommon like it is in the military today for people to go out and participate in carousing like 13 says and even drunkenness and sexual promiscuity and sensuality that oftentimes would end in a brawl or a a fight strife, and even jealousy amongst the troops. So that was not uncommon in the first century and in a military context is not uncommon today. So a soldier on duty needed the exhortation to awake from sleep, oversleeping as a result of a long night of carousing. So all of these images would apply. And as the day is dawning, it's going to refer to the night being over. So the soldier, the night is almost done and the day is at hand. So this would uh, be very pertinent in that context. 
and the imagery of light and darkness, the things that perhaps were pursued in the nighttime were from the darkness, but now the encouragement is, since it's the day is dawning, we need to put on the sense of urgency and look clearly at what is before us. Otherwise, we put our lives in, in danger of, of the battle that needs to be gone into. And again, the imagery of putting on and even specifically the armor here, putting on the armor of light, that would relate very directly to a soldier that would uh, put off whatever he had on in the night, night clothes or pajamas, I guess you could say. And now he has to put on his armor to be prepared for the battle of the day. So you might keep all of that imagery in the back of your thinking because we also are like soldiers. We also are in a spiritual battle. We also face an enemy that is out to destroy us. And we also live in a culture that goes along. And in fact, the God of this world has, to some extent, some control over the environment which we live in. That's where we live. And we are like soldiers that need to awaken from sleep. We can't be complacent. We need to have a life of urgency. And we need to seek those things that are of the light to be awakened and to be clear-sighted and not clouded with darkness. And in Ephesians 6, we have a list of lots of armor that Paul encourages every believer to put on. So there's some spiritual armor that uh, we need to clothe ourselves with. So four images that uh, I hope we can bring to light and apply them to the uh, exhortation that Paul is given in verses 11 through 14. Any questions on any of those images? I think it's pretty clear. They bring home, I think, very clearly and hopefully cement the thinking and the imagery of this urgency of the time in which we live and the urgency needed in approaching every day and every moment in the body of Christ. So beginning in verse 11, do this. Now, it's not a command. It's almost kind of an abrupt start to a new paragraph. Verse 11, in the midst of uh, chapter 13, there's actually like three paragraphs in chapter 13. We looked at the first two, the one relating to the civil authorities or government, and then uh, the one starting in verse 8, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, the whole concept of loving. And then verse 11, almost interrupting the thought here, do this. And like I said, there's no do or there's no command. There's no exhortation there. The translators are trying to get the idea, this is something of an encouragement, something of a motivational statement. So they include in the English translation an imperative. Literally, it's just and this. The, uh, the word there is kai tuto in the Greek for those of you Greek students. And that's just the kai is and and then tuto is this. In other words, and this almost adding 
as he's completed talking about dealing with authorities, completed talking about love, and here's an additional thing to consider and an additional thing to implement in our Christian walk. So uh, you can take it as an exhortation because it is motivational and encouraging. So the New American Standard translates it as an imperative, do this, and what are we to do? We're uh, to know the time or knowing knowing the time. We have a participle there in the English. So the first thing is knowing the time. And this is an encouragement to be aware of things around us. So let's take a look at the concept of not only the idea of time, but being aware. Now, this reminds us, again, another tie-in to the first century. Remember, Jesus had a confrontation with the Jewish leaders in the first century. And in fact, he rebukes them for not knowing the time in which they were living in. And you're familiar with uh, a very important verse in the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew 16. In fact, if you also remember in chapter 16, for the very, very first time, Jesus introduces the concept of the church and introduces a new era in the time of God's dealing. But before he gets into that, he has a confrontation with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Would somebody care to read that first part? And uh, somebody else will read uh, the next two parts. I've got it all on the screen, so you don't need to look it up. Matthew 16. Yeah, 16.1. I've got part of this there. One, two, three. Then the Pharisees and Sadducees came and testing him, asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. Okay. He answered and said to them, oh, do you, yeah. that's it? Yep, stop okay. there. Okay, so they're questioning him and already, now remember in Matthew's gospel, after chapter 12, chapter 12 is kind of the pivot point in the gospel of Matthew. Jesus is announcing that he, in fact, is the Messiah. Now, he states it in Jewish terms, not using the word, but describing himself as the Son of God, fulfilling prophecy, and the crowds are following, and there's growing opposition and questioning amongst the Jewish leaders. And it reaches a climax in chapter 12. The leaders have concluded that Jesus is not the Messiah. In fact, he's a false Messiah. And in chapter 12, verse 14, they begin a plot to kill him. So this is chapter 16, where the plot is beginning to unfold. And Jesus is dealing more and more with with the disciples and preparing them for his crucifixion. And he still has these encounters with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They came up and they're testing him. And they're trying to find an occasion or a reason to bring accusations in order to arrest him and eventually kill him. And things intensify until they actually accomplish their goal and bring him before the Jewish leaders and crucify him. So knowing their thoughts, knowing their motivation, Jesus says the following, and he replied to them. Would somebody else care to read the rest of the verse? Go ahead. Linda. Starting in verse 2? Yep. But he replied to them, When it is evening, you'll say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. 
And in the morning, there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you not know how to discern the appearance? Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times? So that's a rebuke. In other words, they're good at predicting climatology or the weather, and uh, they know what's going to happen in terms of rain and sun and weather phenomenon. But when it comes to understanding the more significant things concerning the culture and the time, they have missed all of the things that are pointing to this, the first century, being a time that is very, very special. And had they known, for example, or they they may have had it tucked away and weren't thinking about it, but had they called to their memory passages like Daniel chapter 9 that predicts very precisely when the Messiah would come, or at least a very significant dealing of God, they could have predicted the very time of the coming of the Messiah. Or they could have looked at other passages in the Old Testament that foretold the, uh, the signs of the coming of the Messiah and what Messiah would be like. Uh, the Even Isaiah 53, which will come into play that probably was very obscure to even the disciples, but passages that spoke of the messianic kingdom and the Messiah and what he would be like and the urgency of that time, the Jewish leaders actually missed. And there were plenty of signs within the first century and within the Messiah himself, the miracles that you see in chapters 8 and 9 that are recorded in the Gospel of Matthew the signs that John speaks of in his gospel, and the other characteristics that pointed to a time of arrival of the Messiah, things were clear enough for those that had a spiritual sense, those that were actually attempting to live a godly life. And there were some Jews, like the disciples that Jesus called, that took note and understood the times. Similarly, in in the passage we're looking at, Paul is saying something very similar. And this do knowing, knowing the time. In other words, evaluating the time in which the first century is unfolding. And by the time Paul writes, Christ had died. So Isaiah 53 had been fulfilled and the passages concerning the the payment for sin, even going all the way back to Genesis 3.15, that there would be a descendant of the woman that would deal with sin in a very final way and an allusion to the crucifixion. Uh, So that had already taken place. Christ had already raised from the dead, fulfilling like Psalms 16 and other passages that were messianic. And now with the death and resurrection of Christ, knowing what Bible prophecy had in store and what Christ had already promised them that he would return, there was an anticipation of a return of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in the passage, this is, I think, what Paul is developing, that at any moment... Christ could return and establish that kingdom that he introduced. Jim, go ahead. 
Hey, what, uh, you mentioned the word when you were talking about the time. You mentioned the word aware, to be aware. Mm-hmm. Now, unlike the time of Christ's first coming, though, is it right that uh, we're not going to have signs as such? Uh, so our awareness is not to be watching for miraculous signs as such, but to be aware of what's been revealed. Is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. There are no signs that we need to be looking for in terms of what Paul is talking about. And we'll develop that. I'm glad you clarified that. That's absolutely true. Don't we call that the doctrine of eminence? Yes. In fact, we'll get to that. Exactly. The doctrine of eminence. And this is what the church in the first century, they had that sense. And even in the first century, there was nothing that needed to be fulfilled that had not already been fulfilled for Christ to return. Now, there were some things that needed to be in place that could have come about very shortly, but there was nothing that needed fulfilling. So there were no signs that were needed for what Paul is talking about. Now, there are some signs that will be present after a particular event in preparation for the arrival on earth for the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, I'd like to get into some of that, but since... Jim already introduced it. This will be some of the things we'll talk about. So before we look at the conditions and the time in which we live in, which he's going to describe in the following part of verse 11, let's take a look at some of these time terms. And there's several of them. The first one that we have here is the Greek word kairos. Now, you probably don't notice it, when you read your Bible, but in uh, in the Greek text, there are two terms that appear quite commonly. Uh, one of them is the, the term that we have here. It occurs more frequently, 86 times in the New Testament. But there's also another one that is not as frequent. And let's take a look at those two. So there's also kranas. And you can already almost... Uh, figure out what the emphasis of the, ta- the the term chronos is. It's just translated time, oftentimes, or related to time. And what do we get from it, obviously? We get the idea... Hmm? Chronological. Chronological, or even chronicles, or the idea of sequence of time, or the unfolding of time. So... And the two words can be used interchangeably, and uh, this one tends to be used more often in terms of sequence of time, but kairos can be used in that sense as well. But kairos is a little bit different, and it probably emphasizes more the general idea of time, and sometimes it has the idea of periods of time. So let's take a look at the way this word is used, kairos as opposed to chronos. It can be used in, uh, well, chronos, let me give you an example of how that is used. For example, in 1 Thessalonians 5.1, chronos. Now, as to the times, in other words, the unfolding of events, and the epochs, this is 1 Thessalonians 5.1, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. 
kind of an emphasis on the unfolding of events that uh, are part of these eras or these epochs. You have no need of anyone, anything to be written to you. In other words, there was plenty already in the first century that Paul had written to the Thessalonians. Now, there was some misconceptions, and he has to write First and Second Thessalonians to correct those mis, uh, misperceptions. But he had given them, sounds like, a pretty complete eschatology of what they could expect. So, 5.1, but we have the context of chronos. As to the, the chronos and epochs, you have no need of anything to be written to you. Also in 1 Peter 1.17, if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the outworking of your stay on earth. You could even translate it. Now it's just translated during the time of your stay on earth, but the word is chronos in that context. So looking at your day-by-day outworking of your life, the encouragement here, conduct yourself in fear, almost similar to what Paul is, is writing in, uh, Ray, in this passage. What, Ray, what reference was that last one? I missed it. First Peter 1.17. Now, chronos, like I said, is sometimes more general, but it can be very specific as well. And it, an example, and it speaks more of like a, an occasion or an era even. In Luke four thirteen. this is Jesus' temptation. When the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune kairos, an opportune occasion. Not so much the outworking of sequence of time, but more in the sense of an occasion. It's also used of very specific occasions, like the one I just read there in Luke 4.13. And it, it can also be used more so than chronos. Kairos is used of a divine appointed time. And would somebody look up uh, 5.6 in Luke 21.24? And uh, we'll have two people read that one. Romans 5.6. Anyone? I've got several verses here, so you might be prepared as we look at some of these verses. I'll read 5 6. That's of Romans? Yes. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. In other words, a divinely appointed time, Christ died. It's on God's timetable, It's, it's an appointed time. And then again, Luke twenty one twenty four. Who wants to do that one? This was this one's in an eschatological time frame, or in other words, a prophetic future time. I can do that. Let's see, Janie. Okay, um, this is King James, and they shall fall away by the edge of the sword. This is the Olivet discourse, right? And they shall fall by the edge of the sword, and shall be led away captive into all nations, and Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Okay, the times there, the times of the Gentiles, there's a particular divine appointed period of time that Jesus identifies as the times of the Gentiles. 
And by the way, the times of the Gentiles began in uh, 605 BC when the first wave of Jewish exiles were taken into Babylon. We are still living in the times of the Gentiles, and the Olivet Discourse tells us when that time frame will end. Does anyone know when the times of the Gentiles will be over? Hmm. At the rapture of the church. Nope. Close, but... Towards the end of the tribulation. Even closer. The very end of the tribulation and the, more specifically, the second coming. I think that's the illusion that we have in uh, the Olivet Discourse. When Christ returns, that'll be the end of the times of the Gentiles. When the Messiah delivers Israel from the Gentile uh, evil nations and establishes his kingdom with Israel as the prominent nation. Now, during the time of Solomon and David, Israel was the focus of world history and was the most prominent nation of that day. And God was using them in a mighty way. But after the decline of the nation and they were taken into exile, and destroyed by the Babylonian Empire, that kicked off the times of the Gentiles and a whole prophetic time frame. Daniel develops much of the times of the Gentiles all the way to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And it will not be till Israel is established again at the second coming as the prominent nation when the times of the Gentiles ends. Now that's kind of a little sidelight there, but that's the usage of kairos. I need clarification on that, uh, please. No problem. Go ahead, ask the question. I, I would have guessed uh, uh, that the times of the Gentiles ended at the tribulation as well. I mean, at the rapture. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's because, uh, the, of course, the, um, the tribulation is the 70th week. Yep. So, uh, uh, I, I guess there, it seems like the way you're explaining it, that the time of Israel and the times of the Gentiles is parallel during that 70th week. No, uh, God begins to work with Israel during the Daniel 70th week. But if you read the book of Revelation, uh, the temple is trodden by the Gentiles and you have a dominant world power, you have a totalitarian Babylon-like system that dominates the world during the entire seven years. Now it begins to collapse as we get closer to the end of the seven years, but uh, you still have the dominant Gentile totalitarian system dominating the world scene, and it's not till Israel is brought into the kingdom that they become the prominent nation again. So the the time. Well, that, that when they become the prominent nation again, they're not. That's not the seventieth week. I mean, there is the there is the seventieth week. Yes. That's yeah. Don't don't confuse God's dealing with the nation of Israel during the seventieth week with the dominant secular empire of the day during the seventieth week. And the dominant empire of the day would be this new Babylonian-like system that's totalitarian. And they are the dominant Gentile force. God is dealing with his people again 
during the seven years, during Daniel's 70th week. But they are under persecution, in fact, on the verge of annihilation even. So I see the times of the Gentiles ending with Christ's return. Okay, I'll just have to think about that more. Yeah, yeah. I think I think you're I think you're confusing God working with the Jews with what is dominant in the secular culture, and they're, they're, those are two different things. No, but I, I, I I'm the thing I'm I'm struggling with is that there's actually a, there's actually a time that's laid out there of seventy weeks. Yes, that's what I'm struggling with. But I'll think about it myself. So I don't have to take more of your time. No, that's fine. That, that 70th week is another kairos. It's another specified time where God is dealing that does, like I think you said, parallel. They go in parallel. In other words, a seven-year period at the end of this times of the Gentile, which is a divinely appointed time. Hey, Jim, this is yeah. Jeff. Um, when you're looking into this and pondering this, uh, don't forget Revelation 13. Although Revelation 13 is in the middle of Israel's, well, Revelation 13 is in the middle of Israel's 70th week, Revelation 13 tells us that the whole world is given over to the Antichrist. Yeah, and that's the point of the times of the Gentiles. Okay. Um, You cut out, excuse me, it's Janie, for some reason, you cut out, what's the beginning of the uh, district? times of the Gentiles. The uh, first wave of exile of uh, the Jewish nation in 605 BC, when Babylon destroyed the nation of Israel. Okay. Now, the destruction didn't complete until 586, but we could view the times of the Gentiles when Babylon began to dominate the world scene. Okay, so it sounds like it's kind of equating... Um, what is the times of whatever group, the dominant power, ruling power. Where Gentile, Gentile empires dominate the world scene, as opposed and, to Israel. As opposed to the Jews or whoever. Okay, thank you. Mm-hmm. I have problems with that, that definition, too, because there were times during Israel's history, uh, other than when they were taken captive by Babylon, were... They were taken captive, and like when the northern tribe was taken out, for example. So you'd equate it to an earlier time? No, I, I, I'm not. I'm just having. I just have trouble with with the way you're you're okay. defining. Uh, but I I'll look at I'll look at it more myself. I, I can see I need to. Yeah. So. Okay. Great. Great. Yeah. I think the times what Jesus I think is alluding to is the time when. Non-Jewish empires dominate the world scene. And even when Israel returned to the land, they were under Roman domination during the time of the Messiah, the first century Messianic times. And we've always lived, you know, the Roman Empire went by the wayside. There have been kind of minor powers. You might even say we, the United States, may be the dominant power. We're losing that. But it's Gentile. The nation of Israel is behind the scenes. Okay, Ray. let's move on. Ray. Go ahead. Jeff. Yeah, I had always understood that the times of the Gentiles was a reference to when Jerusalem was under control by foreign authorities. 
Uh, and that is why we attribute the times of the Gentiles to 605, because that's the point at which Nebuchadnezzar became under control of the Middle East. He took it from right. Egypt at the Battle of Carchemish. But a month later, he attacked Jerusalem. Right. And that's when uh, the king of Judah, the southern kingdom, was replaced by Nebuchadnezzar with Zedekiah. Yeah. Uh, and that's, uh, if you look at the book of Ezekiel, that's where Ezekiel, but well, it's not just Ezekiel, Ezekiel and Jeremiah both date all of their uh, times in their books to the replacement uh, of the crown with Zedekiah under Nebuchadnezzar. They become a vassal state. Yeah. Uh, that's when it, and Israel from then on is always a vassal state, even mm -hmm. uh, up through, well, before 1947. Yeah. Yeah. The problem with that is they control Jerusalem today, but I would say we're still living in the times of the Gentiles. Well, that's true, but uh, the Temple Mount's under control of Muslims. Um, by, yeah, by uh, Israel's permission, basically. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, I didn't intend to go into all that detail, but <clears throat> that's fine. There's also, and you might have this as a subset of these divine appointed times, some of these eschatological future, if you want to use that word more descriptive or easier to understand, there are future times and the word epochs in that same verse that we read earlier, 1 Thessalonians 5.1, that is this kairos so you have both Kronos and Kairos in 1 Thessalonians 5.1. Would somebody care to look up 2 Thessalonians 2.6 for a more... This is Linda. Go ahead, Linda. That right? And you know what is holding... This is a New Living Translation. No problem. And you know what is holding him back, for he can be revealed only when his time comes. When is Kairos... In other words, a divinely appointed eschatological future time. Now, the reference there is to Antichrist, and he will be okay. revealed in a particular time. And that particular time is the time we've been talking about here for the last few minutes in terms of that Daniel 70th week. And he will probably be revealed at the very, very beginning when he signs a covenant with the nation of Israel as described also in Daniel chapter 9. But the point I'm making, this time kairos, what Paul is developing here is there is a particular divinely appointed time frame in which we are living in, and he's going to expand upon this. We've already run out of our time. I was hoping to get further in here, but we'll pick up next week. But within this time frame, Certain attitudes should be adopted, certain approach to life, recognizing and knowing the times is knowing the characteristics of this time, which we are right now living in, and what God has called us to accomplish in this time, knowing for the hour, he says, the hour for you to awake has come. And then verse 9, the night is almost gone. I think he's using different terms here to talk about the dawning of a different time frame, you might say. 
a different kairos. And these are divinely appointed. These are periods of time that God sovereignly is controlling and he has designated and he's even given some prophetic detail to so that we may be able to understand the times in which we live in. So we'll talk some more about that. But I guess in conclusion, for today anyway, think in terms of what God has called us to do and we should be awake We should not be complacent. We should be active. We should be involved in the things of the light. And we'll develop all of that further next time. I thought I'd get through at least verse 11 and into verse 12. But anyway, we can apply the passage in terms of sensitivity to the time. So you might evaluate this week. Come up with some of the characteristics that you observe in the time that should be a motivation to us in terms of our Christian life and our walk and the urgency that we we should have. And we'll pick up there next week. Any comments before we close and we'll have a time of prayer? Ray, is this going to apply to the fact that in Daniel it talks about there will be a change of the times and the seasons and the way that they are uh, evaluated. Daniel is looking forward to a time outside of the kairos in which we are living in, outside of the time that we're living in. We're living in a time that Paul describes as darkness. We'll talk some more about that. But what you're referring to is a future time. After we are gone. Any other comments or questions? I appreciate all your detail. And I think that's one of the reasons all of we're here, a lot of us. That I don't see in uh, most churches. And I think we need prayer on that. With that respect. And <clears throat> excuse me. Um, I, uh, the spiritual battle we're in is ever present. And it's urgent that we realize that I think that's so crucial. And I I pray for a revival in the churches. I've been out walking, door knocking with the church, and there's people who, um, I think we're in the midst of a great, I don't know what you're going to call it, awakening. People, they're responding to the gospel. Great. But I'm not so sure about how many are, you know, really studying the Word of God. Yeah. Um, seriously. That's all I, I really want prayer for that. Um, yeah, well, that's at the heart of what Paul is getting at, I believe, in this passage. So very important yeah. passage. Actually kind of summarizes what Janie asked for prayer, that we should all be living a life of urgency filled with light in order to, as Janie's been doing, knocking on doors to rescue those in darkness. Anything else before we close here? Well, feel free to do it. Pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your times and seasons and epics and eras and walking us through our each individual days. Um, As the days come and go, Father, we think today of the Pertzers and their travel from Dallas to Albuquerque and the time they'll be spending with the Benkies and the Williamses. 
And Father, I ask that you bless that time, make it sweet fellowship for all concerned, that get to have a lot of fun together. Um, and for Phyllis, we pray you that her brother is recovering, Father God, because when we heard about him a couple of weeks ago, it did not seem like he was going to be here on this earth very long. But Lord, you have designated his time, and um, we pray that he would be fully available to you um, in all of the time that he has left, as is Phyllis, and, and for her fundraising, Lord that the people that she's talking to will also be available um, if you are moving them to donate to Mother's Choice and other um, ministries that you would um, just move on their hearts, Lord. Um, for Kelly and her travel from Dallas to California for travel safety, Lord, um, and, and a good time with friends when she gets there. Father, I pray that uh, you would watch over her, that she would also have a time of sweet fellowship with you as she uh, makes long journey. And pray for my friend, Melise, who's moving to Idaho. Lord, that um, in her journey, not only to Idaho, but to um, in setting up home in a new place and all of the uh, things that could crop up that would... Uh, seem like roadblocks, Lord, that she would see your hand, that would acknowledge your timing and be able to rest well in you.